Well, hello, everybody. And today, my friend, Dr. Sally McFedrin is with me. She's an associate professor of OBGYN at Case Western Reserve University uh, School of Medicine. She does general OBGYN, but she has a menopause and a sexual health clinic. She's on the board of the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative and on the board of ISHWISH. So she's very familiar with what we're going to talk about today, which is a big problem called the persistent genital arousal disorder. I'm thinking that's going to be very new to you, but it's a very devastating problem. And it's it's fairly complex. And today we just want to make people aware of this because it's it's not common, but it's not rare. And so you very well may run into it and and want to be aware of what to do with it. So hi Sally, thanks for joining me. You're a good friend of this podcast. We appreciate you being on again. Thank you, Dr. Gibbs. It's always a pleasure. So let's start off our conversation with uh, you know just what is persistent genital uh, arousal disorder and and why is it so bad? Well, we're going to abbreviate that PGAD. Yeah, yeah, let's do genital arousal disorder just does not roll off the tongue as easy (laughs) as PGAD. It also has a second part to it, which is genital pelvic dysesthesia. So persistent genital arousal disorder, it's gone through several revisions of how it's been defined or the criteria for diagnosing it. But the bottom line is it's a persistent or a recurrent feeling people can have these symptoms kind of come and go in waves, but it's basically unwanted feelings of the genitals being aroused. And sometimes it leads to spontaneous orgasms. Sometimes women feel that they need to have an orgasm to relieve this discomfort. The other thing is there is no sexual interest or desire when this is going on. So it's devoid of any interest, but this is going on. And and a lot of times having the orgasm doesn't relieve the problem. It's even sometimes more aggravating. And and as you mentioned, it has to be there for three months. It's not very rare. Like you said, the, it's kind of tricky because some of the surveys that have been done have been in kind of small populations or certain subgroups of populations. So the, the range is anywhere from like half a percent to 3% of the prevalence rate. Um, but it can affect any age. So like you were saying, you know, you just want to be aware that it's out there because women are really intimidated to bring this up for sure. We talk about, you know, a lot of people would say, Oh, wouldn't that be novel to, to, to be quote turned on, but but this could be devastating, and and people have reported uh, is people committing suicide. So this is not a, a pleasurable uh, sensation, correct? Oh, not at all. Like I said, it's it's very intrusive. Um, you mentioned it; it has a very high suicide rate. That's like one of the big red flags you have to screen for right away. I often will have women just say it's like. It's like the focus of their life. It disrupts their quality of life. They can't do anything. I have some women who can't ride in a car because it triggers their sensations. They can't brush their hair. They can't brush their teeth. Um, I have one woman who has a hard time eating because just the swallowing sensation just triggers her. Yeah, there's there can be all kinds of associated triggers. So that is, uh, like I said, it's, it's devastating. How does this problem fit into the the domains of what we call female sexual dysfunction you know we got the 
desire and 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 arousal and all those things how how does that fit in that structure so so just like there's dysfunctions with desire so the hypoactive sexual desire disorders the most common we also have arousal disorders so there's you know what we consider we break it up into cognitive arousal so issues with the the brain processing the interest or arousal and then peripheral or genital arousal problems this is similar so this is goes along that line. So this is a problem with the arousal. They think that there's some trigger, um, whether it, you know, and we'll go over this with the biopsychosocial evaluation, but there's some trigger, some event, um, and sometimes people are born with it, unfortunately, but it triggers a certain area of the brain, this paracentral lobule activation, and it just constantly is firing this message of being aroused, but it fits in with basically all the arousal disorders. It's in the DSM-5 criteria. And another one of those categories is is pelvic pain. And, you know, I'm asking this because you know, we talked about it's it's dysesthesia. It's there's a pain to it. Explain that if you would, because you we think about you know uh, like vulvar pain. It, this is completely different than that, is it not? Yeah. So so some people do have a pain. the The symptoms range from a burning, an itching arousal, um, the dysesthesia is some, you don't have to have the dysesthesia to have the PGAD. That's just some people have this portion of it that they have a, a weird sensation within the genitals or lower half of their body. In terms of the pain, sometimes vulvar pain, vestibular pain, vaginal pain, any of those things can be a trigger. So I know okay. we've had previous segments about like vulvar vestibulodynia and- yes pains such as that, those can be triggers or an inciting event for PGAD too. Okay. That's, that's very helpful. Now you mentioned the, the biopsychosocial model for evaluating this. Tell us about that. How, how does this fit into that model? Sure. So just like with every sexual dysfunction, getting a comprehensive history of, you know, what's going on with the relationship or past relationships, what's going on with their biology or medical conditions. Medications is a key thing here. Psychiatric issues, like specifically anxiety, um, hypervigilance, like an OCD kind of um, behavior. Um, Sexual trauma has been associated with PGAD as well as a trigger. Um, And then social stressors. So a lot of times the PGAD symptoms are worsened with stress. But when we do an evaluation for these women, we're we're just like any kind of pain symptom. You really want to get what was like the timeline? When did it start? What was going on? Was there a medication that got started, discontinued a medical condition? Was there a physical trauma that happened? Like a they slipped, they fell, they hurt their back. Um, is there any other neurologic thing that's going on? Family history is important. Um, there's been a connection with Ehlers-Daniels syndrome. Um, so we want to ask about that. Also thinking about like other pain syndromes. So interstitial cystitis, fibromyalgia, restless leg syndrome. Those are other things that have been associated, but getting that clear temporal timeline is really important. And then in terms of history, asking like, where do they feel the pain or where do they feel the discomfort? Is it 
you know, most commonly, is it just the clitoris or is it the vagina, the bladder, the outside of the vagina, the mons? There can be other areas that are the trigger or that are involved in the arousal problem as well. Now, talking about uh, a good history, you know, when it comes to a, a, a testing evaluation, where, where would you start? We are going to try and keep this somewhat superficial because I the Correct. one thing I want to the, the key message here is ask or at least be open to asking give an open environment so that somebody can divulge this kind of very distressing symptom and condition. But the bottom line is this needs to be evaluated by a sexual medicine expert. Thank so you. using using yes. our Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative to find an expert in sexual medicine, this really needs to be evaluated by us because the the first thing that we will do is evaluate obviously the end organ, the genitals. So we break up the evaluation for PGAD into five regions, basically going from outside in. So outside meaning the clitoris, vagina, vestibule, bladder, you know that area, then we will, uh, that's region one. Region two is then the pelvis or the um, perineum. Um, and so that's like the pelvic floor muscles, the nerves, the blood vessels within the pelvis. That's region two. And then region three is the cauda equina or, you know, distal to the dorsal root ganglions of the sacral nerves. And then we have the spinal cord and then we have the brain. But pretty much in the office, we can really just evaluate regions one and two. And that's where we start. So we want to pinpoint where they feel the discomfort. Almost always the, the genitals look fine. They don't look engorged. They don't look red. They don't look irritated. But we do need to make sure that there's nothing wrong with the clitoris. There's little, you know, people can get like pubic hairs or little keratin pearls stuck underneath the clitoris hood that can be a trigger or a stimulus and just obviously removing them. Um, clitorophimosis where the clitoral hood sticks to the clitoris can also cause things to be overstimulated. As we already mentioned, vulvar vestibulodynia, whether it's neuroproliferative or hormone mediated can cause it. Vaginal problems, either you know inflammation or infection causes. Um, then we have all the bladder irritants that can also be a trigger. So we're gonna be looking at the urethra real closely, making sure they don't have diverticulum or uncles with little gross or outpouchings like hernias of the urethra. And then we also will evaluate the pelvic floor, get our pelvic floor physical therapists um, to evaluate that ultrasounds. We do a lot of imaging of the sacral and lumbar spines, MRIs if needed. A lot of it depends on history. Um, certainly if they've had head trauma, we're definitely getting MRIs very quickly. Um, but that's that's kind of the evaluation that we start with. And there there are tests that we can do by numbing like topically the clitoris to see if that helps things. And then we know, hey, then obviously the end organ is the the major area we need to focus on. Um, but again, this this all needs to be done more by sex medicine experts. And that's the point. And, and thank you for explaining that, because it's nothing you want to venture out on yourself because this is so involved. And so having taken care of a number of these people, could, could you give us some examples of people you've seen that you, you were able to help a simple um, and maybe a, a tough one, a, something that just was going to be really tough and maybe you had to get some other people involved? 
So, so I can't say I've ever had a simple PGAD. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so almost a hundred percent, this is a multidisciplinary approach. So right off the bat, because of the high degree of distress, the suicide risk, we always want to get a therapist involved. Even if they are not suicidal now, we want to assess the anxiety, the distress, because that's part of the diagnosis is it obviously causes distress. So we want to make sure that they have a therapist just in case things get bad. But we also want to work with a therapist to reduce the triggers or to reduce the intensity of their arousal distress. So they'll use the sex therapists are going to use cognitive behavioral therapy to try and reduce all the negative input from their distress. They're also going to try and reduce how these people are hypervigilant about avoiding triggers. Um, and sometimes that avoidance behavior causes more problems. Like my gal who has trouble swallowing, sometimes will avoid eating to the point where she's starving herself because she's avoiding it. So that's obviously a behavior that a cognitive behavioral therapist needs to get involved. So we get them involved right away. And then we also get our pelvic floor physical therapist involved right away, even if they don't have a region two issue that's affecting the muscles, because they will help them with relaxation techniques of the pelvis and help them focus on other areas of the pelvis as opposed to the clitoris. Um, so they are very useful in that. Um, avenue, not just diagnosing a region two issue. So we almost always will use those two disciplines right off the bat. And then many times we get, I get pain experts. Um, so I have a variety of different pain experts that I will use that will help with some of these um, pain blocks, like nerve blocks to do either evaluations or to do treatments for them. During your workup, can you, um, can you differentiate, you know, we, we talked about like vulvodynia, um and egad um do you, can you differentiate between those two pretty easily or or do they is there overlap there you mean pgad and vulvar vestibular dyspnea yeah. so, yes so i would say in my experience most of the time vulvar vestibular dyspnea might be a trigger or a preceding event to PGAD um, because of the nerve distribution to the vestibule and the clitoris um, shared by, you know, the branches, the various branches of the pudendal nerve. Um, but vulvar vestibulodynia, regardless of what the etiology is, is pain. It is persistent pain. PGAD is much more of an arousal heightened arousal state with no sexual desire. So they are different. And then, like I said, the dysesthesia part, um, sometimes it's lack of uh, sensation in a different part of the body. It can start off as hypersensitivity. It can also be hyposensitivity too. Yeah. Very, very different presentations. And you can usually localize the pain to the vestibule only. So, so take us through a, a case, if you would, of. Sure. So um, just you would ask me about a few that I've seen. So I've had a few, I guess the simpler ones are probably ones that are caught early. So, um, you know, like I said, the age range can be children to past menopause when, when they come in, but um, younger women that just have this sense of maybe having orgasms in their sleep and not realizing, not remembering a fantasy, um, but recognizing that it's happening more often, almost waking them up from sleeping so much that their sleep is disrupted. Um, 
one thing <laughs> to keep in mind is, you know, I, whenever I talk about this to non-sexual medicine providers, they're just like, well, this ought to be fun, right? You're aroused all the time. And of course we have to, you know, say, hey, this is horribly distressing. But these women usually are just like, yeah, it was fun the first time. And, and then I thought, wait a minute, this is unusual. And it, and it just kept going. Um, so that one was probably one of the easier ones. And like I said, we usually approach, you know, trying to work with the cognitive behavioral therapy first. Like we usually work with region five, like the brain first medications, maybe to suppress things, although all of them are off label. So we're not going there, but, um, we're trying to desensitize the activation of the brain areas. So that was a, that was a somewhat easy one. Um, another gal just said, you know, she had been noticing a sense of arousal, like all the time, um, wasn't quite interfering with work, but definitely interfering with their relationship because the orgasm wasn't very good anymore. Um, they felt like they had to have orgasms all the time. So they weren't interested in their partner because it like sex became so negative to them because then their, their, their vagina and their clitoris were this kind of like black box of evil. Um, I remember them saying it was just like, I don't want anything to do with it because it's causing me so just so much, you know, angst all day long. I was like, I'm thinking about it all the time. Like I don't even want my partner to touch me. So that one, you know, that's another one. Um, and like I said, my, the one that sticks out is the the gal that um, had a very cyclic pattern. It was a very recurrent every three to four days, this crescendo effect where on the fourth day, like the orgasm had to happen or she would lose her mind. Um, she couldn't drive. She couldn't brush her teeth. She couldn't basically do anything except masturbate that day. Like there was no, she couldn't hold a job. She couldn't do anything. So yeah. Bless her heart. Jeez. Yeah. That one I was very worried about. So I I'd, I've actually had to hospitalize her because of malnutrition because she just stopped eating. Wow. You know, one, one thing I would be worried about seeing in somebody, uh, a clinician seeing somebody like this and not knowing in, in that they would be concerned uh, about shaming them or thinking that they're just hypersexual. Um, what, what would you say to, to people, to, to practitioners uh, regarding so, that? Yeah, well, that's super important because it does get misdiagnosed as hypersexual sexuality all the time or compulsive sexual behavior. And it's not because they're very different. So with PGAD, the woman doesn't want to have these thoughts. They are unwanted and it causes lots of distress. With hypersexuality, that person has lost control over their sexual um, their ability to control their impulses. They have these constant recurrent sexual thoughts, behaviors, urges, and they don't, they lack the ability to control acting on them. It's very, very different. They don't, they don't also have distress over it. So that's what usually causes the conflict because they're masturbating in public and they're not distressed about it. The people around them are, but a PGAD patient knows this is not good. They usually masturbate if they need to in public, they'll, you know, do it secretly. They are trying to avoid this because they are ashamed themselves of what's going on. So in terms of what I can recommend to a clinician, like I said, just 
providing some kind of open environment for somebody to talk about it. All you need to do is listen and say that, you know, I will find somebody. This is not necessarily my area. I feel for you. This sounds horribly distressing. Um, I can only imagine that this might impact your life day to day. And I will do my best to find somebody that can help you. And I think that takes me to to my last point. Let, let's give our folks uh, some ideas of where to reach out. I know our organization, the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative, we have a website. Um, you know, what would you tell people uh, how to reach out to get help in this, especially in the small town people? You know, we're not in Cleveland. <laughs> right. So the good thing with PGAD is I think that almost all sexual medicine providers, because we know how devastating this is, we will help those small community docs work through what needs to be asked, what the evaluation needs to look like, and be able to help them differentiate at least one of the regions, whether it's region one, two, three, four, or five, whether it's the brain, spinal cord, like we can help them do the ordering for imaging and what to test. Um, but a lot of women with PGAD are willing to drive. I have to say, um, you know, our, our world famous Erwin Goldstein in San Diego probably gets referrals from all over the world. They seek him out. There is also um, one of his patients has started a support group for PGAD. So if you just Google PGAD support group, um, Linda's group will come up and they offer lots of resources, almost like self-help how to you know, do your own cognitive behavioral therapy to reduce your stress and anxiety over your symptoms. Um, but Ishwish obviously is another resource to try and find a sex medicine provider. But I mean, I'll do telehealth consults for, for this um, as do most of my partners who do sexual medicine across the US. Well, I, I really appreciate you kind of walking us through kind of a, a difficult subject and um, one that's again, not many people know about this, and I think it would be misdiagnosed and um, just handled poorly. I can only imagine some people how badly they feel. So I, I really appreciate your helping us uh, gain an awareness of what this is and, and some very simple steps of how to get these people to, to help. So thank you. I mean, do you have any parting shots for us that, that you'd like to uh, – pearls that you'd like to throw our way before we say goodnight? <laughs> um, I, I think I've basically said it, but again, just making sure you're not misdiagnosing and shaming somebody thinking it's hypersexuality, right. right. um, making sure that you get them to a sexual medicine provider, providing that open environment for somebody to talk and just recognize that this is something that needs help and psychiatric evaluation like immediately. Sally, thank you once again for all your help and thanks for being a, a friend of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me again. Thanks, Terry. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med. Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.